So this morning we're going to continue our mini-series called Centered, the Foundation, Glory, and Mission of the Gospel. And throughout this series, we've been taking some extended time to focus on our value of gospel-centered preaching and doctrine, which is one of the seven shared values of our family churches in Sovereign Grace. And so let's just, I thought it'd be good to remind ourselves of that, uh, that shared uh, value again. So I'm going to read that. It goes like this. We believe that the gospel, the good news of God's saving activity in Jesus Christ, is the pinnacle of his redemptive acts, the center of the Bible's story, and the essential message for our faith, life, and witness. We are committed to preaching the gospel, singing the gospel, praying the gospel, and building our churches upon the gospel. Our ultimate hope in all that we do is not our plans and labors, but the perfect life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, and glorious ascension of Jesus Christ. Amen. What a great statement that is. So last week we considered the foundation of the gospel, and Billy taught us from 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel of Jesus Christ is of first importance, the saving, transforming, and empowering center of all that we believe and do as Christians and as a church. And this morning, we're going to consider what it means to give God glory. And for today's class, I'm pleased to welcome our special guest professor, former shepherd, songwriter, and reigning man after God's own heart, King David who will be teaching us from Psalm 145 what it means for God's people to give him glory. So let's read God's word together. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. 
Oh Lord, we come to your word this morning um, and, and we bring all sorts of different needs and concerns and, um, and situations, Lord, that we find ourselves in. Lord, so, but we come, Lord, we, we come, we're invited by you uh, to come to your word and to receive from you, Lord. And uh, so as we, as we consider the topic of your glory this morning, Lord, would you, would you be here among us as we know you are, we trust you are. Or would you be here uh, proclaiming your, your word, your truth to us? Or would you encourage the weak? Lord, would you do what your word says and lift up the brokenhearted and all who are falling? Lord, whatever, wherever anybody finds themselves this morning, Lord, would the preaching of your word bring fresh faith? We pray this in your holy name, Lord. Speak to us. Amen. Paul Tripp wrote a book called Awe, A-W-E, Awe. Um, and at the beginning of his book, this is the way he begins. He introduces us to several hypothetical people. Some of these people that he introduces us to are on the verge of accomplishing their life's dream, like buying the antique car they've always wanted since childhood, or visiting the foreign city they've always dreamt of seeing, or spending $70 for a taste of that rare, world-renowned Wagyu steak. Some are in the thick of it, chasing their dreams building their ultimate dream home, feverishly studying to land that dream job, working to achieve the financial success that will hopefully set them up for a worry-free future. And some, unfortunately, are watching their hopes and dreams slip right through their fingers, like the couple whose house, along with all their precious memories, burns to the ground, or the athlete whose ACL injury vaporizes his chances of an athletic career, or the woman now in her 40s, having lost all hope for a husband and children of her own. And then Tripp goes on to ask this question. He says, what do all these people have in common? They have dissatisfaction in their souls, an emptiness they long to fill, and they're attracted to awesome things. It's something that not only believers do, it's something that every person who has ever taken a breath does. It's not bound by family, culture, history, geography, language, or ethnicity. It's not a matter of age or gender. It's not about any of these things. What all these people share in common is that they are human beings. And because they are human beings, they are hardwired for awe. And so are you. That's kind of the premise of his book. But I just wonder, as I've read through some of those vignettes and and asked that, shared that quote, do you identify with any of those people? Do you have a sense of dissatisfaction in your soul? Do you ever feel an emptiness that you just can't seem to fill? If so, Tripp says it's because you've been hardwired by God to seek and experience awe. Deep in our DNA, we've been pre-programmed with a longing to see and experience glorious things. Sunsets and symphonies, snow-blanketed mountainsides, a bride walking down the wedding aisle, a touchdown scored against all odds, a soldier reunited after years of war. We were designed by God with an appetite for glory, but not just any glory, God's glory. Far above all these objects of earthly glories, God intended for one object to be prized above all, himself. We see this in Isaiah 43, the prophet Isaiah prophesying for the Lord. He says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. 
Think about that. When, when the God of the universe was forming you into a little embryo in your mother's womb, it's kind of crazy to think that every single one of us, that happened to us. That's a crazy thought. Uh, but it was his intention all along that we'd give him glory, that we'd worship him, that we'd seek after him and dwell with him, to know him and obey him, to image his beauty and worth, and to find refuge for our heart and mind and future in his sovereign care. So our main point this morning, it's really simple. It's just you, you exist to give God glory. This is what we're going to consider this morning. And it's probably not a revelation to you. If you've been in church for a long time, you probably know that you exist to give God glory. But hopefully the Lord will use our time uh, in this text this morning uh, to just refresh that concept in our souls. Um, hopefully he'll use this text to, to make it our aim, to, to ponder the works of God, to prize the worth of God, and let that to overflow in the praise of the glory of God. Psalm 145, it was written by King David. It's literally called a psalm of praise, or the, I've seen praise of David in Hebrew. It's a psalm that theologians believed was a vital part of the Jewish faith, with evidence suggesting even some liturgical use in their public gatherings. And, and it's not only a song, uh, it's an acrostic. And you can't tell that from looking at it in the English, but, you know, in the Hebrew, uh, each letter, I mean, each stanza starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and what that little detail actually shows us is just how much effort that David went into to put this song, this craft, this song. Um, as you probably noticed when we read through it, like many of the Psalms, the language, it's very expressive and emotive. Sometimes there are loud proclamations. Other times there's almost quiet, thoughtful reflections. But David begins the Psalm by letting us know right up front what his intentions are. He tells us what he's going to do, who he's going to do it to, and for how long he intends to keep it up. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever every day. I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Throughout the psalm, David's going to float back and forth between these personal expressions of worship and then some very corporate ones. Uh, but David knows God isn't an impersonal, lifeless deity like the gods of Israel's enemies. David is, God is very much alive, sovereignly and intimately ruling over his covenant people with authority and care. That's why David extols him as my God. And king. And I love the comprehensive resolve he has to bless God's name as he says, every day and forever and ever. David sees this extolling, it's a lifelong pursuit. It makes it onto his calendar every single day. It's non negotiable, unrivaled. It happens without fail, and there's no end in sight. David plans to keep blessing and praising the name of the Lord every day until those days turn into years, and those years turn into forever and ever. And the first thing that David chooses to do when he sits down to extol God and his, his God and King and bless his holy name is to get out the history books and take time, and this is our first point, to, to ponder the works of God. Look at verse 3, 3 through 5. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. If you look throughout the book of Psalms and, and really any other place in Scripture where you find humans worshiping God, what you find is, is God's people recounting the works of God. 
Maybe said another way, you find them pondering who God is and what he has done. And that's because God's glory, the thing for which our our lives were created to behold, at its essence, it's the sum of God's character and capabilities. That's what his glory is. It's his attributes and his accomplishments. It's his personality and what he's performed. It's who he is and what he's done. That's what the glory of God is. And that's what David, that's what we see David doing here. He's very familiar with who God is and what God has done. He had seen the Lord prove his greatness to him time and time again in very personal ways. The Lord had instructed the prophet Samuel to hand select David to be Israel's next earthly ruler after Saul. Many times the Lord had equipped David with courage and favor to overcome his enemies from a hungry lion in the field to a giant Philistine in the valley to tens of thousands of enemies on a battlefield. The Lord had also had given courage and favor to David. And the Lord had also several times protected David from Saul's bitter, murderous jealousy. Time and time again, David had witnessed the limitless power of God protecting and preserving both himself and God's people. And, and David knows there's, there's, to be no, there's no other God as high. No other king is powerful. No one greater than the God of Israel. And he intends to meditate on his majesty and to commend and declare his works to the coming generations. We'll talk about some of that next week as we consider our, our children's ministry. But, you know, did you see in verse 3, he says that God's greatness is unsearchable. And what David's saying when he says that God's greatness is unsearchable is not that, not that we shouldn't try to search out God's greatness. That's not what he means by that. You know, in verse 5, he says that we will meditate on the glorious splendor of, of his majesty. So I think what he's actually saying is that God's glory is so infinitely glorious, so holy, so powerful, no one will ever be able to run out of ways to discover and describe it. And, and David knows, he's tried. Uh, he penned 75 of the 150 Psalms in the Bible, and each of them have different ways that, that describes the multifaceted, glorious splendor of God's glory. Just give you two examples. Psalm 29, verse 3 and 4 says this The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Or in Psalm 97, 2 through 4, says this Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. David's just trying to pick all these examples of ways that he can describe the majesty of the Lord. But this God of glory is unsearchably great. So David reminds us, ponder the works of God. So let's consider our own lives for a second. Do you give yourself time to ponder God and his works? Is that something that is a regular practice for you to search the unsearchable greatness of the Lord, to meditate on his majesty? Maybe some of you can't remember the last time you spent time pondering anything. Is that a a reflex? Is that like unfamiliar territory for you? Uncharted terrain? Um, we live in such a busy, fast, crazy world. It's hard to find space to just 
sit down and think about things sometime. But I, I think it's actually something that we do more than maybe we at first glance think. I mean, think about anything in your life that has value. Think about the things you prize. If you're a married man here, consider your spouse, for example. Hopefully you prize her. That would be the first step. <laughs> uh, but at some point, perhaps many years ago, you did a whole lot of pondering, didn't you? There was a prize that you desperately wanted. You, you strategized, you took careful notes, you fantasized over what it would be like to be with that woman one day. Every moment with her was sweeter than the one before. So you made sure to cherish every second in her presence. Other values like friends and schools and hobby began to take a back seat to this pursuit. Or, or maybe what about you guys who pursued a career? You spent hours mulling over would-be career paths, placing a little future you behind a desk in a little future office. Maybe you remember college as just a season of signing your social life away so you could ponder sociology or business or medicine. You invested hundreds of hours with your nose in a textbook, but so that one day you could have a foot in the door of the career that you longed for. Moms ponder the lives of their growing children. Businessmen ponder the stock market and world politics. Grandparents ponder their grandgirls. And wannabe athletes, they ponder fantasy football stats. We are, at our core, God-created ponderers. The time and effort we spend concocting our next Facebook comment or fantasizing about our next DIY project or fretting over what an awful job we must be doing at parenting our children, at least compared to that other perfectly parented family. These are overwhelming evidences that God created us with the ability to ponder. So, so be encouraged this morning. If you haven't been pondering the works of God in your life, you are able to ponder. You just need to make yourself available to ponder. If we exist for God's glory, we are to praise and prize him in the way he intended. But first, we, we have to make time to ponder. This means carving out time each day to meditate on his wondrous works. Recounting, meditating, calling to mind all that he's done. Letting our minds try to exhaust the inexhaustible wonders of this unsearchable greatness. Reading and memorizing his word and storing up his truth and promises in our hearts. All of these are ways that we ponder the Lord's greatness and his worth. And we do all this so that, like Paul says in Ephesians 3, we can comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's our desire, to prize him. And, and that leads us to our next point. We, we will prize what we ponder. So over the next few verses, the volume of David's song kind of gets cranked a little bit. Um, look in verse 6, it says, They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. He's saying, speak, declare, pour forth, sing aloud. These are loud words. These are of yeah, loud. I'll just say they're loud. <laughs> As he's pondered the works of God, his soul is awakened with fresh, passionate affection for God. He wants everyone within earshot to hear about the mighty deeds of God, to witness his greatness and to taste of his abundant goodness. But then we get to verse 8, and the tone, I think, seems to change. David seems almost, almost to pause, to, to let some of the fanfare of the previous verses fade into the background as he focuses his attention more intently. It's almost as though David is looking right into the face of God himself. 
He says in verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. This doesn't appear to be the first time David's thinking these thoughts. I wonder if David is maybe reminding himself of the day the prophet Nathan confronted his hidden adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. You might remember if you've read Psalm 51 that, that David wrote that psalm after Nathan had confronted him. And, and we hear similar language in that psalm. This is part of it. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's pleading to the, the slow to anger kind of God, the merciful and gracious God. But as I was thinking about that point, just wondering maybe if this was, was behind why David was writing this, I, I just had this thought, like, what, what led to David's sin was ironically the same thing that would have kept him from it. David had pondered until David had prized And that's what led him to sin. David had paced up there on his rooftop, fantasizing over what God had forbidden until he was convinced the prize was worth it. David hadn't stopped being a worshiper. He just chose to aim his worship at a different God. Matt Papa wrote a book called Look and Live. And this is a quote from that book. It says, the deepest affections and longings of our souls are continually being aimed and fired towards something, some glory. Like an automatic weapon, worship is happening now as you read this. We are always squinting our eyes and zeroing in on something. And that something was always meant to be the excellency and infinite worth of God. But we have aimed poorly. We have sought to conquer kingdoms, to build our names, our dreams, our comforts. And in doing so, we have not sought too much, but too little. We've not aimed too high, but far, far too low. So we often find ourselves dissatisfied and feeling empty and unfulfilled because instead of aiming, for, aiming our affections and longings of our souls toward the all-satisfying beauty and sufficiency and majesty of God, we set our sights on, on vanishing vapors. Piper said in the book All, uh, he says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things. And there's no room for the great. We were created by God to be glory givers. But instead, we've turned ourselves into glory junkies. Always on the hunt. Aiming at whatever offers to give us our next fix. We foolishly, like Romans says, exchange the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We, our worship is misaimed. Instead of trusting God's promise to satisfy us with himself, we believe Satan's lie that there must be something better and exchange the all-satisfying pleasures God intended us to experience in himself We exchange it for a counterfeit. Again, Matt Papa said, the diamond. We exchange the diamond of God's glory. Take it to the pawn shop of the world and trade it for a penny. A diamond for a picture of a diamond. That's such a good image. 
This misaimed craving for glory, it's what drove David to take Bathsheba and murder her husband. It's what drives us to materialism and pornography and drugs and alcohol and gambling and overeating. It's even why some people get married and have children or go hunting or play video games or go on vacations or binge shows on Netflix. It's even why some pastors seek to have large churches or why some businessmen try to climb the corporate ladder, all of us looking for just a nibble of glory. And sure, many of these things, they do give a temporary taste of accomplishment or pleasure or fame or security. They're not evil things. God has given us his creation for us to enjoy. But those things will never last and they will never satisfy The grace and mercy and steadfast love of God, it's something on which David had pondered many times, I think, since that incident. And he pondered it so much that it became something that he prized. So we need to stop looking for satisfaction and substitute saviors. We exist to give God glory. We need God to realign our aim. We need to be re-centered on giving him glory. We need to ponder God's works until we prize his worth. David knows the more that more sorry David knows the more deeply he ponders the more passionately he will praise and that's the the last lesson that we'll learn from David so we we will praise what we prize in these next verses all of David's pondering it, it begins to overflow into this this praise this worship of the Lord look in verse 10 All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Which, by the way, just a cool note in studying this week, verse 13, that's actually the same thing that King Nebuchadnezzar said uh, in Daniel chapter 4 that we just got finished studying. That saying, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar had gotten to the place of realizing, pondering, prizing the Lord, and he, he had the same praise kind of thought that David had. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So obviously, it's just not enough for David to have pondered privately Now he wants to praise publicly. He didn't know that, sorry, and he didn't want to allow anybody to stand by and be mildly entertained. Look at all the words he's using. He's saying, give thanks and bless and speak of and tell and make known. These are all action verbs. They involve movement. He's trying to get everybody in on the party. All you saints. He wants you and all the saints to join in on this celebration. But why is this his response? Well, I bet this is this has happened to some of you guys. I hope it's happened to some of you guys. I think it's probably something familiar. But um, let's say you're scrolling through Facebook or whatever your social media feed is, and you come across a video, and it's claiming something that's just downright impossible to believe. Something like, you know, man bites toenail off of sleeping African white rhino. Um, and you're like, there's no, no, there's no way that happened. But you know, you watch the video anyway, but then to your surprise, you were actually shocked at the jaw strength of this guy who actually just chewed through a rhino's toenail. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. Uh, But for some reason, it just doesn't feel right to let the glory seeking get lost on you watching it all by yourself. So the next thing you know, you're shouting from the toilet, babe, come look at this. (laughs) 
our, our prizing pra- wants to overflow into praise. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. That's an interesting phrase. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's so good. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. That phrase, the delight is incomplete till it is expressed. That's what we see David doing here. As David pondered, he's come to prize something infinitely valuable and to complete the enjoyment, he wants to get everyone to join in. This is the way God has designed it to be. This is what we do on Sunday mornings. Just a few minutes ago, we gathered in this room and to complete the enjoyment of all the truth that was displayed up here on the, on the lyrics, we, we need to get each other to rejoice in this thing, to rejoice in the, the forgiveness of God and, and the salvation that he's purchased for us. God has designed us this way. All throughout the, the Psalms and the Bible, we, we find the encouragement to express our praise with a full range of emotions. I mean, Psalm 145 alone covers extol and praise and declare and speak and sing aloud and give thanks and bless. That's seven. But elsewhere in the Psalms, we see things like in Psalm 47, it says, clap your hands, all you peoples. In Psalm 47 also, it says, shout to God with loud songs of joy. In Psalm 149, it says, let them praise his name with dancing. Now try that one out on a Sunday morning. In Psalm 95, it says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. In Psalm 95, it also says, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. I know some of you guys who don't think you sing well, you, you love that verse. It just says, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Um, Psalm 95 also says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker. God is big on his people praising him and praising him with their whole bodies. Our body posture during corporate worship, it it, it shouldn't look like we're standing in line at the post office. If you're pondering the works of God and prizing the worth of God, you'll want to praise the glory of God. And that overflowing praise, it's meant to come out of you, to be visible, outward, and expressive. So, before I run off all of our more timid brothers and sisters who may be listening, thinking, you're crazy, dude. I'm not dancing for you, for anyone, for anything. And, and I hear you. Like, I'm not a dancer. I didn't even dance at my own wedding. So that, that isn't, you know, you know, my poor wife had to suffer that. I'm sorry, <laughs> babe. I still am sorry about that. But um, anyway, express, what I meant to say is expression is not the focus. We're not focusing on expression. So, you know, we shouldn't be looking at everybody saying, oh, that guy doesn't prize the Lord. He's not raising his hands today. Like that's, that's not the thing that we're supposed to be doing. I think what David is showing us here in Psalm 145 is that there's a correlation between what's going on in our hearts and what expresses itself and pours forth from our bodies. That's the point. I'm not saying that clapping and shouting and jumping up and down and dancing through the aisles is the only appropriate way to express genuine love for and devotion to God and his glory being seen. Though there's certainly room, I just showed you, there's certainly room for that expression in the Bible, all those expressions in the Bible's teaching. But what I am saying is that as we ponder God rightly and deeply, 
the normal Christian reflex is praise that comes out expressively and passionately. So as we're talking about this being a gospel-centered church, a part of that cent- central centrality of what we do together is that we are people who praise God's glory ex- expressively and passionately. But you know, just remember, expressiveness for one person, it might look like reservation to you for somebody else. We aren't all going to express praise to God in equally expressive ways. Again, expression, it's not the focus. The outflow of your heart is the focus. And kind of related to that, I just want to say a word of encouragement to our older saints. Expression isn't just for the young and dexterous. (laughs) Uh, Maybe as you're hearing me speak about physical expression, all you can think about is that pain in your shoulder or... You know, how it hurts to get out of the bed in the morning because of the throbbing pain in your feet or back. Um, you know, maybe you could be hearing that and thinking, does that mean there's no hope for me? Uh, am I left to some second-rate experience of the worship of God? So I want to tell you guys a quick story about my mother-in-law. Um, my mother-in-law, was, her name is Linda Rockefeller, and she was diagnosed in 2008 with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, and this woman, before she was diagnosed, like if you knew her, she dearly loved to sing. And you guys knew her. There's a couple of you guys in here who might have known Miss Linda. Uh, but she dearly loved to sing. Every year she sang in the Christmas musical. It was like one of her favorite things to do. Uh, she loved worship songs. One of her favorite songs was a song called Soon by Hillsong. It had the lyrics, I will be with the one I love. With unveiled face, I'll see him. There my soul will be satisfied. Soon and very soon is one of her favorite songs. Um, but she concocted ALS in 2008 and uh, for a period of four years wrestled with that disease and uh, ended up going to be home with the Lord in 2012. But if anybody knows anything about ALS, uh, that disease, it's a disease that, that attacks your nervous system. And so um, you lose fine motor skills. So you, you stop being able to swallow or blink or move your arms. Uh, so you, you kind of deteriorate into paralysis. Um, mind was, is fine. It doesn't affect your brain. So it's kind of like the opposite of Alzheimer's. Um, and so anyway, Miss Linda, you know, being a, a woman who loved to be expressive, she was a very joyful, passionate, animated woman. Um, you know, when, when she was battling through ALS, when, you know, she couldn't use her voice anymore to sing, she would just raise her hands. Uh, and when she couldn't raise her hands anymore, she'd just lift her head. Uh, and then, and then this gets me, when she couldn't lift her head, she'd raise her eyebrows. Her, her praise of God was an outward expression of an inward reality. She loved God and she wanted her mouth and hands and head and eyebrows to say it. So we're not talking about getting everybody to conform to some ritualistic requirement. As the Lord told the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we want our hearts to overflow with genuine praise, but our hearts won't do that. Our hearts will not overflow with genuine praise for a God that we do not prize. And we will not prize a God that we have not taken time to ponder. So, Joshua, you can... Go ahead and come up. We'll, we'll conclude uh, here with a song in a second. But I, I just love how David concludes this psalm. 
David has presented us a transcendent, unsearchable, and glorious king in this psalm. One who rules his kingdom with justice and provides care for every one of his subjects. That's what he's going to say in these next few verses. Listen to how many times uh, David uses the word all, A-L-L, all. Not to be confused with awe. (laughs) Um, Look in verse 13. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. There's a sense in which God is good and righteous king. He extends common grace to all mankind equally. He's not talking about believers here. He says that he's going to give all food in due season and every living thing will be satisfied. Whether or not people come to a place of allegiance and and submitting to his lordship. But as we see in the next section of verses in 18 through 20, there's a different kind of grace that God extends to those who fear him. He is especially gracious toward those who call upon him. Look at verse 18. And see the difference. The Lord is near to all who call on him. There's a qualifier. To all who call on him, qualified even more, in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. And that, that all the wicked, that's, that's showing that there's a difference between the first set of verses and the second set. That the Lord's going to do this stuff to his people who call on him. But the Lord will give common grace to everyone else. David, I think, was looking forward to a coming day. He was anticipating a coming Messiah that would hear the cries of his people and come to redeem them. So I think we who are in Christ, we get to read this psalm from a different vantage point. We see Christ as the faithful and kind ruler. It is Christ who is able to uphold all who are failing. Falling, sorry. It is Christ who is able to raise up all who are bowed down. It is Christ that we're to look to for provision and sustenance. It's Christ who is near to all who call on him. It is Christ who fulfills the desire of those who fear him. It is Christ who in Philippians 2 says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it is Christ who will preserve to the end all who love him. Until the day when God will destroy wickedness forever and bring us into his everlasting kingdom for all eternity. Reminds me of the old song, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout, those are expressive words, the victory. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we 
so want to be a people. I, I so want to be a man, a husband, a father, a friend, a co-worker that, that lives this kind of way, that is centered on the truth that we exist for your glory. Lord, and that, that, that the gospel, what we've been given in the gospel, that, that just fuels that truth. Lord, we, we in Christ, we have so many reasons to glorify you. Lord, we have, we have been given a savior to worship that is all sufficient that cares for us, that loves us, that knows us. Lord, so we have no excuses this morning to walk away from our sermon text this morning and not ponder and prize and praise. Lord, so would you help us? Because we are prone to wander. So we need your help to help us ponder, Lord. Lord, help your people. Lord, we want to be a church that has a flavor, a, a scent about it. Lord, we want to be people who love you, Lord, and who, who, who when people encounter us, they encounter you, they encounter Christ, they see your glory, Lord, because we've seen your glory and we've been affected by it. It's, it's stuck in our clothing like, a, like the smoke from a fire pit, Lord. We want to have that kind of scent about us, Lord, so that we can declare your glory to all people, Lord. So thank you for this psalm. Thank you for our text this morning, Lord. Change us, we pray in your name. Amen.